Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll just be reading the last few verses, beginning in verse 18 and, uh, and ending with verse uh, 20. This, all of chapter 1, of course, introductory uh, words to uh, 1 Timothy. Paul has laid out um, the, um, the charge that he is under and he's given to, to Timothy to be under to preach in sincere faith and uh, the true gospel. Um, he is warned about uh, the false teachers and, um, and he starts naming names in this passage. So if you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand as we read the word of God together. Beginning in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, uh, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. If you've ever traveled by boat, ship, anywhere, there is a moment when you realize that your safety, that your well-being is totally and completely dependent upon the integrity of that boat or that ship continuing to float. Uh, when the ship leaves the dock, it, it does so rather slowly. And so it goes so slowly enough that this, at least at first, the safety, the nearness of land doesn't seem to evaporate all that quickly and seems rather close. But methodically and slowly, as the ship moves out of the port and in at to sea, land gets further and further away and more difficult and more difficult to see. At some point around the 2.9 mile mark, the curvature of the earth obscures your view. And so at that point, you, the land, that your, your vision of land, it slips beneath the waves and you're out to sea with nothing around you but water in every direction. That's the moment that you first get a glimmer of the, 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 the dependency you are on the ship. And then when night comes and it's dark and the only light is the light that the ship gives off by its own light, just illuminating just around you, to the water you can see, it is, a, it is a palpable experience when you realize if this thing goes down, we're in big trouble. Paul in this passage says about these two men that they had made a shipwreck of their faith. He knew something about being shipwrecked. He'd experienced near-death experiences in multiple shipwreck. And I think with these memories in mind, he writes to Timothy a charge to fight the good fight for the gospel and a warning to, of the grave consequences that come from rejecting the gospel. Now, I want to make the case this morning that uh, certainly of the danger of rejecting the gospel, but I want you to understand 
You may be thinking, sitting there this morning, well, that doesn't apply to me because I haven't rejected the whole gospel. But I want you to hear very carefully this morning that if you reject any portion of the gospel, by rejecting a portion, you reject the entirety. And by rejecting their entirety, you make a shipwreck of your faith. I want to divide our time this morning in these ways. Number one, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are charged, you are commissioned, you're commanded to be active in the battle for truth. Secondly, you, there, there is a present danger that the temptation is around us. It is, it is a reality for all of us that you might give yourself to things that will cause a shipwreck of your faith. And then lastly, I want to talk about that last verse that causes most of you some concern when you read it. What does it mean to give someone over to Satan? And I want to talk about the painful consequences that come uh, for those who, who reject the gospel. But let's begin in the first, first verse, in the first half of the second verse. And I would categorize this as active battle, that, 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 that Paul is calling Timothy to engage, to be engaged in the active Warfare in the active battle for the truth. He says there in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you then, that you, that then by them, you may wage the good warfare. And in another place, Paul will say of himself that he fought the good fight. Similar, same wordage, verbiage there as fight the good warfare. A couple of things here. Number one, he's commanding Timothy to engage. To actively, personally engage for the testimony and for the defense and for the proclamation of the truth. A soldier acts according to the orders and commands of his superior. Now, you may remember in verses, uh, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1, and then that connected to verse 11, Paul articulated to Timothy the charge that they were both under. And he said that we are, uh, that we are under the, the charge of, of love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, sincere faith in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In verse 15, Paul makes clear that the foundational truth that they, they preach that uh, uh, they preach under the, under the charge of God is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So, so, so their, their, their charge in verse 5 and verse 11 is to, to hold fast to the sincere faith, good conscience, and, and, and faithfully preaching the truth. And then what is that truth? Verse 15, he says that the foundational truth of the gospel is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now in verse 18... Paul builds on this to further charge Timothy to continue in this calling to wage the good warfare. The word translated as charge here is the same word used in verse 5. The, the root word you may remember is from angelos, which means messenger. It has a, an, a, a prefix added to it, which makes the word, the meaning of that means an announcement as to what must be done to order, to instruct, to command. This is the command by which Timothy and Paul both function under. The word, therefore, entrust means to, to, to put something in the care of someone else, to commit oneself to the care of someone else. The idea of giving of something of value to another for their safekeeping. 
The point that Paul is making here is that Timothy could not be an observer. Timothy could not be a disinterested participant. He could not be a passive conveyor of truth. In other words, Timothy couldn't be the guy that says, listen, I know the gospel, I can preach the gospel, I can faithfully teach the gospel, and I don't frankly care whether or not you hear it or not. No, he's calling Timothy to be an active participant, to preach, to teach, and to engage for the sake of the gospel. Timothy was under orders to engage in the battle for truth, for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of the lost, and for the protection of the church. Now, friends, there is significant pressure today to avoid getting involved. If you engage in the battle for truth, you're likely to receive vitriolic, passionate retaliations. And so there's there's an impulse in most of us to just not engage. You may know the gospel. You may be able to faithfully teach the gospel. You may know that you have neighbors and family and friends who are lost and going to hell, but you're just re- you're, you're, you're resistant of engaging with them because you know if you engage with them on the truth, it may not be all pleasant conversation. And you'd rather just go along and to get along than to engage. I appreciate, I, I appreciate, I understand that temptation. But Paul is saying to Timothy, dear brother, you are under commands. You are under orders to proclaim the gospel, to engage for the, for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of the lost. Not engaging. Not involving yourself may be the safe approach, but friends, it is not the faithful approach. The battle is raging today for the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls. Satan is actively working to deceive and to destroy. And as servants of Christ, you do not have the option to remain neutral observers. As servants of Christ, you don't have the freedom to stay on the sidelines. As servants of Christ, you don't have the the freedom to remain behind the lines of battle. No, brothers and sisters, for every brother and sister in Christ entrusted with the gospel of salvation, you are under orders to engage in the battle for God's truth. You're commanded to engage, and you're commanded to engage for the glory of God. Verse 17 is a response to the patience, of the, the, to the patience that God has shown to Paul to bring him to salvation and the cause of why we must engage in the Lord's battle. You may remember in verse 17, having given his testimony, Paul breaks out in a in a doxology, in a word of worship, where he says, To the king of, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy has been entrusted with the testimony of the gospel. And we understand that the gospel has two main purposes, both of which, both of which are interrelated. First, 
The gospel is the hope of salvation for sinners. So verse 15, Paul said, Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. So it's appropriate and right to say that, the, that the, the, one of the purposes of the gospel is to bring the hope of salvation for sinners. That's why Paul said in verse 15, that's what he's commanding Timothy to do here in this passage. The battle that has been raging since Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden, not because of their own decision, but because of their sin, is over the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. And brothers and sisters, though the testimony of Scripture records moments when it seemed like Satan was gaining ground, the greater testimony is that God has been working throughout history to bring about his perfect redemptive plan for the salvation of sinners before the Lord. The fullness of God's redemptive plan was displayed on Christ's cross when, when, when the once-for-all sacrifice for sin was made. Last Sunday, we, we had the Lord's Supper. One of the things that, that we've be, I've begun to do in more recent days, ah, I love this. This is one of those just sweet spots in the life of ministry that uh, I was telling a friend this morning, there's some things I have to do and there's some things I get to do. This is one of the things I get to do. So one of the things we've been doing when we have baptism and Lord's Supper on the same Sunday is I invite the, the ones that we baptize to sit up front and then I serve them individually, their, their first communion as baptized believers in the faith. And I do that so that I can just walk them through and talk them through the, the elements, the, the bread and the, and the juice, why we take them and what they mean. And one of the things I, I generally share with them is there's a reason why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper and we do not have a sacrificial table in the building. We don't, sacrifices, we don't sacrifice bulls and rams and lambs because we've rejected the Old Testament. We don't sacrifice bulls, rams, and lambs because the law of the Old Testament that demanded such sacrifices was fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating that Jesus, his body was broken for our redemption. His blood was spilt for our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews writes it this way, but, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the first purpose of salvation is, for the, of the gospel is to preach the salvation of sinners, that Brothers and, sinner, brothers and sisters, you preach the gospel for sinners, that Jesus came into the world to save those who are condemned in their sin. But there is a second purpose, and this connects with verse 17. The second purpose that God has brought salvation to rebellious sinners is for his own glory. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah that he was going to send his servant, Jesus, to redeem his people. In Isaiah 42, God spoke about what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. And I want you to hear the prophet Isaiah in his words. He wrote in, in chapter 42, Thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and 
what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Verse 8. I am the Lord, that is, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, God is saying, I'm doing this. I'm going to provide my son, my servant for the redemption of my people for my own name's sake and for my own glory's sake. So here's how we understand this relates to this good warfare. You're under, the, you're under the charge. You're under the command to engage the lost world in the good fight for the glory of God and for the testimony of the gospel. But let's be very clear. The battle that we fight is the Lord's fight. And all of the battles that God fights, he fights for his namesake and his glory's sake. The victory that will be had is the Lord's victory, not our victory. And all the victories that God brings about are for his namesake and for his glory's sake. Fight the good fight for the glory of God and his name to be praised. Be active in battle. But secondly, recognize that there is a present Danger. Look in the second half of verse 19. He says, by rejecting this. So that's the command, the charge, the truth. So by rejecting that command and that charge and that truth, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. What is the present danger? The present danger begins with rejecting part of the gospel. And you must understand, friends, that rejecting part is rejecting the whole. So Paul contrasts what he calls Timothy to with the rejection of these two false teachers in the church. In the second half of verse 19, Paul says that Hymenaeus and Alexandra have rejected the sincere faith, the truth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, the word, the word that is translated as reject means, uh, is a, it means to push away, to, to no longer pay any attention to, to, to previous beliefs, to refuse to listen to or to reject. And I think it's important as we walk through this passage to understand that these men were not claiming to reject the whole gospel. So these men were not men who were saying, I deny Jesus ever existed. They they weren't saying, we're atheists and we have nothing to do with the gospel. No, they were still attempting to participate in the worship and the life of the church. And they might even have said that they had not abandoned the gospel. They had maybe only added to or only they had rejected part of it while still trying to claim a, 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 a portion of it. But dear friends, listen very carefully to this. If you reject part of the gospel, you reject all of the gospel. This same lie is very prevalent today. Today, some want to preach 
the forgiveness of Jesus without the condemnation of sin. Many church members want to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, but they don't want to talk about or deal with the condemnation over their sin. And you may remember John 3, 16, we love, but John 3, 18 says he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already under condemnation because of our sin. Some want to claim that they're followers of Christ while rejecting the command of Jesus to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Now, one of the things that I think is positive about the collapse of cultural Christianity is I think through that God is purifying the church. It's been painful, but I think it's spiritually good for the church. But friends, listen, there are many who want a arm's length relationship with Jesus. They don't mind doing churchy things when it's convenient, but if anything more important shows up or comes up, they'll choose that over Christ every time. They don't mind talking about Jesus when they're around other Christians, but when they're around their worldly friends, you wouldn't know any difference between them and the world. They want to have Jesus. They want to claim identity with Jesus, but they are unwilling to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus daily. Some want a relationship with Jesus when it's convenient for them while rejecting Jesus' teaching that if you love him, you will obey his commandments. We've said it other times, I want to say it again, that to follow Jesus is an all-or-nothing proposition. You're either his or you're not. You're either a follower or a rejecter. You cannot be both. These lies give false comfort, but they lead to destruction. A little bit of church is dangerous because it gives you a false sense of spiritual security when, in fact, there shouldn't be any at all. When I was preaching through the end of 2 Corinthians, we uh, preached a message on testing whether or not you have genuine faith. It was important for the first century church. It's important for our church today to test and see, are you truly the Lord's? Have you truly been redeemed? Have you received the whole gospel? Following Jesus demands you give your whole life and your whole heart to the Lord. If you reject part, any part of the gospel, you reject it all. And rejection of the gospel, Paul says, leads to spiritual disaster. Paul's judgment of these two men is that they had made shipwreck of their faith. Now, Paul personally had experience with shipwrecks. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he had been shipwrecked three times. Nobody wanted to sail with Paul after three times shipwrecked. In Acts chapter uh, 27, most of that chapter is the recording of a harrowing event where uh, Paul was near death. And except for the promise of God to save all those who were on the ship, uh, the, 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 the opinion was that they were surely all to be lost to the sea. Shipwrecks are caused when weather overcomes the vessel's ability and equipment. Malfunction causes a catastrophic damage or bad navigation causes the ship to strike something that fatally damages the hull. Whatever the cause, when a ship sinks, it is by definition a life-threatening crisis. I hope your boat sinks in Laurel Walker Pond or Lake 
most of you can swim to the edge. But if your boat sinks in the middle of the Atlantic or in the middle of the Pacific, it's a life or death situation. You're too far out to swim to, to, to safety. You're too far away from anyone else so they can get to you quickly. When the ship sinks, you are exposed to the danger and hostilities of the ocean's expanse. And what Paul is trying to, to put into our minds here with this, this connection with rejecting part of the gospel and shipwrecks is that rejecting any part of the gospel truth is like entrusting your life to a rudderless ship. When you deny portions of the gospel, it's like removing sections of the ship's hull and, and hoping that it'll stay afloat. When you trust in false teaching, it's like sailing into a hurricane with a leaky boat that's taking on too much water. You're putting your trust in something that cannot survive. You're putting your trust in something that will not last. You are leading yourself to a shipwreck, to a disaster of your faith. Now let's be honest. There may be, and in fact there usually is, a delay between the rejection of a portion of the gospel and the disaster that it brings. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat when somebody forgot to put the plug in it. If you're not paying attention, you get pretty far out, and then your feet start getting wet. And you start looking around at what happened, and you realize there's a hole in your boat. But there was a delay. You had a hole in your boat the minute you left the dock or the shore. But there was a delay between what caused the disaster, and when you realize that you are in trouble. And friends, what's happening with many of you is you've rejected a portion of the gospel, and at least initially there doesn't seem to be any real consequence. But like sailing with a ship with a hole in its hole, there's no way not to be shipwrecked. Reject part of the gospel, there's no way not to have a spiritual disaster in your life. There may be a delay between the rejection and the disaster. However, rejecting all or part of the gospel will eventually lead to spiritual disaster. So one last thing. The painful consequences that come. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you're okay with this passage until we get to the last verse. Because the last verse seems a bit strange and a little confusing. So let's read it together, and then I want to explain to you what Paul is saying. So in verse 20, he names these two men, and then he says of them, he says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. The two things about this verse... First is that Paul does this for the witness of the gospel. But to understand how that works, you, you need to understand what verse 20 is saying and what it is not saying. Those two dynamics are very important here. First, it is important to define what this verse is not saying. 
So verse 20 is not saying it is possible for the redeemed to lose their salvation. Friends, if you've lost your salvation, you never had your salvation. The Bible is very firm that Jesus knows who are his, that he keeps his. That if you have been bought with the blood of Jesus, there's nothing that can unbought you. It's not saying that the redeemed can lose their salvation. It's not saying that Paul has authority over who is saved and who is not saved. And it's not saying that that, that Paul is working or associated in any way with Satan. He's not in cahoots with Satan. When Paul writes in verse 20 that he has handed these two men over to Satan, he is speaking of what you and I might call excommunication or disfellowship from the church. It's a phrase he uses in other places in Scripture, but it means to put out of the the right fellowship of the church. Paul wrote with similar language, language to the Corinthian church about a man in the church who was living in unrepentant sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The idea there is that the church recognizes that a brother or sister is in sin, is in rebellion to the gospel, and they put them out of the fellowship as a public and a, testi- a public testimony to them, the community and the church alike, that this brother or this sister is not walking faithfully with the Lord. There are two ways that removing those in sinful rebellion for the church is a testimony to the gospel. First, it protects the church's witness and it, the restoration, it, restoration uh, discipline is restoration focused. See, to, to allow these men to continue in fellowship with the church while teaching false teaching would be to confuse the church's witness. If you allow these men who are rejecting part of the gospel or who are adding things to the gospel to remain associated with the church, it would confuse the church's witness of what is the true gospel, what is sincere faith, what is the main reason that Jesus came into the world. Paul instructed the Corinthians not even to share a meal with one who claimed to be a follower of Christ but who was living in rebellious sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. See, the fellowship of believers is not derived from goodwill. The fellowship of the church is not derived from friendship or kinship. This is important. We have fellowship with one another today not because we like each other. Now, I hope you like one another. You can look at your neighbor and say, I like you. That's okay. But that's not why we have fellowship. The fellowship of believers is a product of common faith, of our redemption through the blood of Jesus, and our mutual obedience to his commands. That's what gives us fellowship with one another. I hope that produced from that is 
is kindness and goodwill and, and love for one another. And I hope that we do indeed like to, to serve and to, to worship and to fellowship with those. But brothers and sisters, get the order correct. What puts us in connection, what puts us in fellowship with one another is our redemption before the Lord, is our salvation in Jesus, is our mutual obedience to his word. The fellowship of the church is the witness to the gospel and to those who are walking faithfully with the Lord. In part, when we say we have fellowship with one another, we're bearing witness for and to one another that we're walking faithfully with the Lord. Now, the second way that removing those in sinful rebellion from the church fellowship is a testimony to the gospel is that the church that is that church discipline must be, should be, always be restoration focused. Now, hear me very carefully. Sounds pretty harsh when Paul says, I'm giving this, these two men over to Satan. But understand, Paul is not angry with these two men. Rather, he is concerned for their spiritual well-being. He indicates the purpose of excluding them from the fellowship is that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now remember... That in verse 13, Paul testified that he too was, before Christ, a blasphemer. He knows what it is to be a blasphemer. He had been confronted in his sin by Jesus and by grace and through the mercy of God been brought to repentance and salvation. His desire is not that these two men would suffer for suffering's sake. That is not biblical. It is not related in any way to church discipline. No, he desires that these men be brought to repentance and back into a right relationship with God and the church. Paul encouraged the Christians in the Corinthian church to restore a repentant brother who had been excommunicated. Second Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For such a, a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You, you see in that working, Paul's recognizing it was right for the church to discipline, to disfellowship, to put out, to turn over to Satan. But when by God's mercy and by the grace of God, the brother was brought to repentance, the response of the church is to rejoice, to return the brother back into right relationship and to celebrate what God has done in their life. God desires to restore and to forgive sin. So should the church be focused. The painful consequences of the church as testified through church discipline are for the witness of the gospel and out of a desire that's, uh, desiring sincere faith over the comforts of the world. Now, if there was a portion of the sermon today that's going to stir your Kool-Aid, this is it. This passage cannot be understood without properly understanding church discipline. However, it is exceedingly difficult for many to understand church discipline because so few churches practice biblical church discipline and so very few have ever witnessed healthy biblical church discipline. Now, the question should be asked, why? Why has the church abandoned church discipline? Why have we 
forsaken this testimony that we're to bear. And I think there are several contributing reasons. The primary one that I think has affected at least our denomination and, and our faith tradition of Southern Baptists and Southeastern American churches is that when you have a non-biblical model of church leadership, that ultimately leads to a non-biblical approach to discipline. I shared with you when I began this series and I preached verse 1 of chapter 1 that, that part of my heart of preaching this, this series out of 1 Timothy was to expose us to what the Bible teaches about church leadership. We're, we'll get to that. But I, I think that's, that's part of the, the issue. We, 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 don't, we can't discipline well because we've not been led well. When there's no biblical authority in the church to confront sin, there will not be any effective confrontation or discipline of sin. And I'll deal with this subject later when Paul addresses the roles of deacons and elders. But added to this, I think today there is a very weak view of the gospel. I'll just remind you, we, we, we talked earlier this morning about if you reject a portion of the gospel, you reject all of the gospel. And frankly, today, the, 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 the most common understanding of the gospel is all warm and fuzzy, no truth in condemnation. Jesus wants you to be healthy. Jesus wants you to be wealthy. Jesus wants your grass to always be green, your kids to turn out, and you to always be smiling. Jesus wants you to have your best life now. That kind of stuff. But if that's, if that's all you have of the gospel, there's no room in there for the confrontation of sin. There's no room in there for godly biblical church discipline. Maybe on a more personal level, simply a, a lack of desire to confront sin. I identify with this one. Sometimes we prefer or desire pleasantries over faithfulness. Or maybe it's just an inappropriate emphasis on comfort over holiness. We'd rather be comfortable, get along, than to pursue holiness. But brothers and sisters, we must train our hearts to desire sincere faith and godliness over the comforts of this world. I cannot press this enough to you this morning. We must train our hearts to desire sincere faith and godliness over the comforts of this world. The church has too often been guilty of overlooking sin and seeking fellowship with rebellious believers because we would rather have peace with one another rather than with God. We would rather enjoy the comforts of this world rather than the blessings of a right relationship with God. We would rather pride ourselves in the gathering of a large crowd than the witness of a faithful congregation. In my own circle of Baptist pastors, the brag points are never, my congregation is faithful to the world word. Brag points always usually start with, my congregation's getting bigger. My seats are all filled. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, I want a full church. But it would be better to desire a faithful church than a large crowd. 
It would be costly and relationally painful for Paul and Timothy and the church that Timothy pastored to disfellowship these two men. They were likely leaders in the church. They likely had followings in the church. They likely had people who thought highly of them, liked them, appreciated their teaching, had been led astray by their teaching. And you can understand in just the dynamics of your relationships in this church and in your family, when Paul wrote these words, he's handing these two men over to Satan. That would be relationally costly to him and to Timothy and to the church. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness to the gospel requires that you fight the good fight. You devote yourself to the true gospel. Faithfulness to the gospel requires that you honor obedience and faithfulness over the temporary comforts of this world. For 73 years, the exact location of the HMS Titanic was not known. It was known that the ship had struck an iceberg, but until the wreckage could be inspected, many questions remained about what actually caused that massive ship to sink. Amazingly, an expedition seeking to find the wreck site in 1980 passed a sonar device exactly over the wreck, but because of the technology level then and sonar ability, it did not detect the wreck site. But five years later, a man by the name of Ballard led an expedition again to try to locate the wreck. And on uh, about uh, 12... 30, 12.45 a.m. on Sunday morning of September the 1st, 1985, crews on that expedition watching the video feed from the submergible they were dragging behind the boat began to see debris on the smooth seafloor. They sent out the alert, and so they awoke all of the crew, and they all came and gathered around those monitors. And as they continued in the direction they were going, that debris field became, began to be more and more populated with more debris. And then, mirac not miraculously, but so surprisingly, the, the massive boilers of the, the Titanic came into view, and then the gigantic hull then came onto their screen. They had discovered the Titanic wreck. In the American mind, few shipwrecks hold more fascination than the HMS Titanic. For my generation, this, this fascination was made all the more by that amazing discovery. So my generation grew up hearing the, the tragic tales of life that was lost on that uh, fateful night in, in April. And, and, and we had grown up hearing the amazing uh, testimonies of those who had survived the Titanic wreck. But then this mysterious wreck that, that held such a large place in our, 
in our collective thoughts and memory, 1985, we began to see live, real images of what the wreck looked like on the ocean floor. From the moment the ship struck the iceberg to the last moment that the stern finally slipped beneath the water's surface was only two hours and 40 minutes. For such a massive ship that was said to be unsinkable, that was a very shockingly fast demise. So immediately following Ballard's discovery of the Titanic, research began to try to understand what allowed, what caused the ship to sink. There have been theories. And if you go home this afternoon and Google what caused the Titanic to sink, you will find volumes of information, some of which very technical. I was reading some this week down to the, the rivets and, and how far apart they were placed and whether or not they were properly seated and all these things that engineers and, and, uh, and, and others have tried to, to determine what caused this such a massive ship to be so fatally wounded and then sink so rapidly that night in April. The likelihood is that the debate may forever rage over the fate of the Titanic. The theories, the ideas, the, the engineering decisions and all those things will likely as long as there is memory of the Titanic rage about what really caused that ship to sink so dramatically fast, we may never really know. But that's not true when it comes to your faith. Abandon faithfulness to the gospel. Reject a portion of the gospel and your faith will be shipwrecked. Brothers and sisters, you must fight the good fight. You must wage the good warfare for the glory of God and the gospel's testimony. And you must hold tight to the sincere, to the faithful Jesus Christ and he came into the world to save sinners because anything else anything else will lead to spiritual disaster
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.